This is the Five Point Play Podcast, the diehard Duke basketball fans podcast for the second straight season, episode two. We are sponsored by the Duke Blue Brotherhood Forums. You may have seen AC tweet about this this week. AC, talk about the Duke Blue Brotherhood Forums. I heard they just signed up another two or three hundred new subscribers. Is that right? Oh, yeah. It's one of the fastest growing platforms out there for uh, for Duke basketball discussion and recruiting, man. And it's it's just a really good site. A lot of people on there uh, run by, you know, run by a lot of good people. And the conversation is great, man. You'll see us on there talking about recruiting. You'll see us talking about the upcoming season. You'll see us up there talking about, you know, seasons past. They sponsor the podcast. It is a whole podcast page. It's a good spot, man. It's a good place to talk Duke. So if you want to sign up, just find a Duke, Blo- uh, Duke Blue Brotherhood forum. Yeah, and, you know, one thing, uh, AC, I'll tell you is I think one of the highlights that you can go on that site for is the in-game discussions. So, oh, yeah. you know, those, I mean, we were talking about it um, a couple of days ago. There was one from the huge Virginia win last year where it was 35 pages long. And yeah. you have, and, and you know, it's not like a Twitter, you know, if you want to compare it to something, you know, why would I sign up for this? Well, it's, it's kind of because you have a higher level fan on there, not the Twitterverse that is just, you know, this guy sucks and this guy should die. You know, <laughs> tweeting, right. tweeting at the people, like, it's, it's literally, you know, a bunch of, like, sophisticated Duke fans, for lack of a better term, oh, uh, sure who, who know their history and, like, know what they're talking about and, you know, talking about the game. So it's like you have, you know, 500 of your best Duke buddies in the same room during games chopping it up, which is absolutely like. Yeah, no, no, Duke, no trolls, no UNC trolls, no Duke trolls, no, you know, none of that. It's just it's people who love Duke, who love to talk about Duke, man. It's a good spot. Yeah, so definitely, uh, definitely sign up. I think we have uh, a link on uh, on our Twitter, so definitely check it out. Um, one thing I actually did see on the uh, Duke Blue Brotherhood uh, forums uh, the other day, by the way, did you guys see this? That Derek Lively said that he's not seven one anymore; he's now seven two, pushing seven three. Did you see that? I did see that. He just keep growing, man. I don't know what kind of lips he has in his shoes, but apparently, dude is going to be like Yao Ming by the time he gets to Duke, man. Yeah, and Jack, do you, do you think that that is – is there such a thing as being too tall? I mean, if if you're mobile, as long as you're not having the injury issues that guys like Yao Ming, Manute Bull had, I'm not complaining, honestly. No such thing as too tall, especially for a guy who can shoot. Is is he officially the tallest player that Duke will ever have had? But they have uh, – Zubek was 7'2", right? He was listed 7'2". That's my, that's my, that's my next thought is that I'm thinking with Zubek. It was 7'1", yeah. a, a little bit bigger than 7'1". Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think if he uh, passes Zubek, I think he'll be number one. Wow. Yeah, Zubek uh, and I think Marshall Plumley are the two tallest guys we've ever had. That's right. I forgot Marshall. Well, well, Marshall himself seven one too. Well, you know, Marshall's also the best three-point shooter that we've ever had. This is true. This is yeah. true. Uh, can you be better than 100%? I'm not – you know, I know they – I know they always say you can give it 110%, but you, I know you can't actually be better than 100%. Um, yep. All right, so let's kick, let's kick this show off here. Speaking of attention, and you don't get, you don't get much more attention than uh, you know being 7-2, 7-3, but the year that we had with Zion Williamson was probably the most attention that any college basketball team has ever had since probably the 91-92 back-to-back champ Duke, um, who they basically weren't comparing to the Beatles at that point. Um, but now with social media, with, you know, legendary Duke podcasts like this one, um, you know, Jack, can, can you remember a season, um, you know, even with that Zion season, 
you know, I don't think we ever envisioned how big the attention or how much attention they would get. But coming into this year, when everybody knows that this is Coach K's earmuffs last ride, how much attention do you think that this team can actually handle? Oh, I think there's the spotlight's going to be on them. This is Duke basketball we're talking about, and this is like like you said, it's it's K's last season at the helm. They're going to be under a microscope the whole way through. Um, as as you said, TK, the whole like after one game, the 2018-19 team was like getting all the attention. Like Zion Williamson, the most hyped up prospect for the draft since LeBron James, like most covered since LeBron James, quite quite probably. Um, I think this team's going to have more attention. Like you remember, like on first take the day after the Kentucky game, <laughs> yeah. could Duke beat the Cavs? Vividly. It's very vividly possible vividly. that that coverage is is happening again. But, like, just could Duke beat the Pistons? Could Duke beat, like, insert whatever team's going to be at the bottom here? I don't think necessarily that that take is going to be said again because I think the people who said stuff like that aren't really around anymore that being said <laughs> Paul Pierce that being said we got um we're gonna have attention the team's gonna have a lot of attention on on them uh on line on tv even on the radio but like people do still listen to sports radio occasionally and Duke's gonna be the talk of the town with coach K's last year coming in with like Boncaro Griffin it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot yeah, I mean, it's basically a perfect storm, but AC, one specific question for you. Mm-hmm. We had basically a Zion cam, you know, rolling, <laughs> you know, during that season. I have to imagine, I'd be almost surprised if we come start coming down the stretch in ACC play if we don't have a Coach K cam. Oh, uh, yeah, obviously, yeah. That, I think, and, and I think depending on the team's performance, it, it'll be different than, you know, what Jack was just talking about, because like Jack brought up, like it was it was all about after we beat Kentucky by 40 points, which Kentucky was everyone's favorite to win the title because of the recruit class and everything. We beat them by 40. And that's where all that, you know, all the can they beat an NBA team talk comes. And then we peaked that season in that game. And I almost wonder if the attention had something to do with that. But it'll be different this year. It'll be more about K more so than the players, unless the players come out just, you know, dogging everybody which, you know, it's, it's gets more increasingly difficult as time goes on. But, I, yeah, it's, it's, the attention is going to be unreal. It's going to be every, every you know, sports center, every first take, every, every time Duke loses, it's going to be a major story. Whenever Duke wins, it's going to be a big story. You know, when I, if, if Coach K gets a technical, it's going to be a huge story for a week. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's undeniable that everything is going to be on K – on what he does, on what he says, on how the team does. And, you know, these kids now, I almost say there's more attention and more scrutiny than even that 92 team face because of social media, because of the access to media and internet and, and instant news. Totally different than you had to pick the paper up and read about Bobby Hurley and Christian Leitner and the guys. You know, so some of the games that Duke played back in 92, you know, we were just coming off the tape delay era. So some of those games weren't even, you know, televised or live. Some of those, those, those guys played. So now everything is, every single game is going to be on ESPN or, you know, whatever channel is going to host it. So, yeah, it's it's crazy what they're going to face this year. And if we had to have a team face that type of scrutiny, honestly, I, I like this team. And I, th- I think these guys will be able to handle it once it gets going. Yeah, you said one thing, and Jack, I got to ask you here. Um, could you imagine 
somebody actually teeing up Kay in his last year? <laughs> It'll Ryan Kersey's going to be the first one. <laughs> Jack TB Teddy's going to be there. There's no way. There, don't get me started. There's no way TB Teddy is <laughs> wrapping any of our games this year. No way. Oh, I hope not. I'm on a I met. I met Ted Valentine at the 2019 ACC mm-hmm. tournament. I got a photo with him. He was a very nice guy. He told me that he did like refing Duke games, so uh, not sure how if that's a good sign or a bad sign. Any game on TV, he likes the ref. That's a fair point. That's a fair <laughs> point. <laughs> but oh, I'm I'm worried. I just hope that I hope we uh, we get the luck of the draw when it comes to ref assignments. Yeah. Uh, um, okay, so we know that we're going to get a lot of attention. You guys broke it down pretty well. And, you know, with that attention comes, you know, a lot of big expectations and a lot of criticism. Anytime you do something wrong, anytime, uh, you know, we lose a game. So, AC, I'll start with you. Let's play. Kind of piggybacking off of what you said there, it's going to be crucial that we have captains that we can lean on. Mm-hmm. And we know that Wendell has been named the captain, but it sounds like Wendell and Joey are both going to be in Charlotte for media day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine. I can't imagine Joey not being a captain. You know, as long as he's taking care of all his stuff, you know, off the court and everything else. I can't imagine he's not going to be a captain or name the captain at some point. He's been there four years now. You know, it's pretty much ceremonious to have the senior be a captain. So for him to be named captain, I think would be a big deal for him. Be a big deal for the team. And quite frankly, he's the only player on the team that has NCAA tournament experience. So there you go. Right. Hey, don't be dissing on my guy Theo John. <laughs> That's true. That's him. true. What yeah. Marquette made it one year, right? With him. Yeah, yeah. The uh, they got knocked out by John yeah. Morant. Uh, but either way, Jack, um, kind of take it from there. You know what? What presence do they have to have as captains to get this team to where we ultimately want to be? Because they're going to be called upon quite a bit, especially in post game, to try to be able to lead their teams in the huddles. Uh, on the court, off the court, during you know during the long breaks that we're going to have uh, around Christmas time, like these, these guys are going to be called upon in the Kings last year to do quite a lot. Yeah, the only thing I think I think uh, as has been said, Wendell will be a captain. I think the only thing that could hold Joey from being named captain is off the court stuff. Not not that there is super much in the way of off court issues, but. You know, Joey Baker, he's an interesting dude. I think he has what it takes to be a leader. Wendell has stepped up in the past. We've seen it. You can see this is a guy who wants to be a leader. Joey Baker, the same thing. He's the only guy who really has experience being, like, at Duke in the tournament and having that kind of, like, media coverage. And just generally, he's the only one who has any idea. He's going to have any idea what's going on come March. Because, like, it's, it's weird to think, but he was a freshman. And, uh... He's a senior now. He's he's had the time there. He's going to need to step up. Not the best way to articulate it, honestly, but like Joey, I feel like he's going to step up. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he, he's had one of the more unique careers of any Duke player. You know, he comes in a year ahead of schedule. He, he He's asked a red shirt. Uh, then, you know, and, that, and that's going with the, the Zion thing. Then Zion goes out and he's mm-hmm. asked to come in. Then he has what is, you know, a decent, you know, jump his sophomore year. And then we have the COVID year. He doesn't get to play in the tournament in the sophomore year. Then we have the COVID year. They're 13 and 13. He shoots 31%. And now we're, we're just at the point where it's like, okay, if, if, 
if Joey makes shots, he's going to play. If he doesn't make shots, he's going to be a cheerleader. So, and you see, my question is, is he a guy that we can rely on to be in that leadership capacity if he's not a guy that is performing on the court? And and real quick, I don't know what Jack is you know referring to about Joey three-piece off the court, but maybe that's something that we have to have like a premium subscriber base <laughs> to talk about whatever that might be. Okay, you should take it away. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think Joey Joey likes to have fun, so that's that's what Joey does. But no, uh, I, I think he can. I absolutely think he can be a leader if he's if he's not playing. I mean, you saw him. Yeah, you know, this is obviously an acute example, but the Louisville comeback. You saw him on the court. You know, with the uh, you know we're we're doing this and that whole thing. And, you know, he's always he's always been kind of in that cheerleader role. So that's that's nothing new for him. So I, I don't think that it's a problem that if he's not performing. We're gonna talk about performance later with him. I think uh, believe in a little bit on the podcast, so we'll we'll get into that more in a minute. But if nothing else, you know, as we've alluded to now, it's he's he's the one guy on the team that has experience at Duke in the tournament under the lights. He was a part of that ridiculous media-driven season with Zion. He's now a part of the second ridiculous media-driven Duke season with Coach K retiring. So it would it would be you know if he wasn't named the captain, it would be really odd and. If he is named the captain, I absolutely think that he will be able to kind of help guide the young guys through whatever questions and pitfalls they might they might find. Cool. Well, you, you alluded to it, so let's just get right into it. For the next, what is it, three, four weeks, we're going to pick a subset of Duke players and kind of give our predictions for what they're going to be able to do this year. And uh, we, we just talked about Joey Buckus. I was going to save him for the uh, for the end. Sorry, Joey three piece. <laughs> but Jack, what what are your um, expectations and predictions for what Joey's going to produce this year? Give me the stats. So Joey, I think he's going to be like the seventh man. He's going to play probably around thirteen to fifteen minutes per game, and I, I see him shooting between like thirty eight and forty three percent from three. I think I see seven to ten points per game. Hopefully, uh, I might be underselling him a little bit because he's he's very valuable and he he's a shooter. Shooters can get hot really easy. Think like uh, I guess best example is like a Clay Thompson gets hot like it's nothing. I could mm-hmm. see Joey doing that. That being said, there's just so much talent in front of him that he very easily could like only be playing like that much time, only score that much. But we we know we have seen he is capable of much more. Yeah, AC, um, you know, his sophomore year, as we alluded to earlier, was his best year. You know, he shot 43% from the field, 39% from mm-hmm. three. So I don't think he's out of the realm of possibility that he can shoot 40% from three this year. Uh, quite frankly, if he doesn't shoot above 38%, I think, it would, I think he would even say, too, that would be a failure mm-hmm. based on his 31% shooting from three last year. So... Uh, I don't think that he gets to anywhere close to double digits per game, but I can see him scoring about six and a half to seven points per game because I, I do agree that he will have a few double-digit games in there, maybe get to, you know, a 15-, 16-point game. And it, really for him, the only stats that I wrote down were 38% from three and 7.1 points per game. That's kind of what I'm expecting from him. Again, he's going to be, you know, one of those players that he's either hot or he's not, and that's going to determine it all for him. So AC, you know, wrap it up for for Joey Three Piece. What he got? Yeah, the more I kind of did some digging, and the more I thought about it, man. 
I hate to say it like this. I really don't like saying it. I'm not, I'm not out on Joey being a contributor. I don't have, I'm losing faith in Joey being a, a big time contributor. I was looking at some numbers and I, again, I don't like it. <laughs> I really don't like it. Number one, let's talk about the percentages. Like you said, I think if he's shooting under, under 38% from three, that's going to be tough for him to see the floor. So far, he's a career 36% three-point shooter, right? So already, he's already underneath of that mark, right? So then let's just go into something that I took a peek at throughout Duke's history. And it's the junior to senior year leap, or what I'm going to call it is the junior to senior year decrease. Because other than a few notable players like Christian Leitner and J.J. Redick, not many guys have been – have gone from their junior to senior year and actually increased their stats significantly. A, a couple people who really kind of did that were Chris, Chris, Chris Carroll absolutely did it. Rashawn McLeod absolutely did it. And Cherokee Parks absolutely did it. But then you look yeah. in, into the, the one and done era, the only ones that really increased their stats were Marshall Plumley and Mason Plumley. That's it. Yeah. Most seniors in Duke history, and this includes Grant Hill, their stats actually decrease. And I kind of liken Joey to Lee Malchioni, and Lee Malchioni saw his points decrease by almost three points a game. And, it, and that season really became about, do you want him taking shots or do you want JJ taking shots, right? Because they're taking the same shots. And it's gonna be Joe, that's going to be the same thing with Joey this year. Do you want Joey taking shots or do you want somebody like Trevor Keels or AJ Griffin on the floor taking the shots that they get on top of everything else that they do? So that's, that's a big deal for me. And then the other thing about Joey, it's, He's only had, after January, he's only had three games in which he's scored in double figures. And two of those games were against Wake Forest. So unless we play Wake every game this year, I, you know I mean? I, I seriously am like, is, is Joey, how much is he going to contribute? I absolutely think, I think with his shooting ability, can he come in and provide us with something? Yes, but he's not really providing us something that we're missing. So if we're not missing the three-point shooting, if Keels can shoot, if Griffin can shoot, if Wendell can shoot, if Jeremy can show he can shoot, then we're not missing anything that Joey's given us skill set-wise. If none of those guys, for whatever reason, can shoot the ball, then then cool, Joey's going to get on the floor and, and get his shots up. But So I'm not looking at him as a useless player by any means, but some of the things the other guys do are better than what he does and better than what he's shown us for the past three seasons. And because of that, I'm starting to feel like you know, we're, we're, we're not going to get that big breakout Joey, Joey Baker season, which honestly, again, if those guys are taking care of business, we don't need it. And that's a good thing to do. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that take. I think it's, it's harsh, but it's, it's reality. It's his fourth season. Um, I do want to follow up a question for you, though. And you, you kind of mentioned, like, you don't usually take a step up in your senior year. Joey's coming from a really low, really low bar, though. So I would think that, you know, kind of like a Marshall Plumley, it gives him a little bit more room to take that jump. Do you think it is inconceivable for him to take a big jump a la Marshall Plumley just because he's basically coming from nothing? Only, only if what he's giving us is something that we're missing. Like Marshall, Marshall gave us something we were missing his senior year because Emil Jefferson went down. You know what I mean? So now he's, he's thrust into the role of now he's taking over everything in the post. We had no choice but to play him. I don't think we're ever going to be in a position this season where we have no choice at all but to play Joey Baker because of the amount of wings that we have, because of the personnel that we brought in in the offseason between transfers and recruiting. 
I, I don't see us being in that position. If anything, last year was that time that we really needed Joey Baker to do something different. And, and you saw what happened. It was like, because of the way the season went and the way everything was going, you know, it just, for whatever reason, it just never matriculated for him. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, the next player here that we want to get some expectations for, hopefully a little bit more uplifting, <laughs> is uh, Theo John. Theo John, obviously fifth-year senior, coming from Marquette, playing for Wojo. We all know we talked about it last week. We're not expecting him to come out there and give us 25, 30 minutes. He's going to back up Mark Williams. The footage that we have seen does look pretty solid, uh, that he's moving well, his body looks good. No Photoshop, Theo John. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll start here, Jack. Uh, I got him, you know, he's not going to be asked to play much, and I did take a look on his stats from Marquette and try to say, okay, on a much reduced minutes per game of, you know, I'm looking at the 10 to 13, 14-minute range based on, you know, situations. So I'm giving him three points, three and a half rebounds, and kind of right at that one block per game. That's kind of what I got for Theo John. Jack, what do you got? I mean, I kind of see him doing like what Dwight Howard did last year for Joel Embiid. Just being that guy who's like a rim protector, a decent rebounder, he's not going to get much in the in the sense of playing time. If he's playing more than 15 minutes per game, I think we're in trouble. Yeah. Um, I, I see him. He's going to be a guy who has five fouls and is going to – Kay's probably going to have him use them. Like the guy's incredibly strong. He's good, at, he's good at getting blocks. That being said, and something that like might not be visible from like just looking at his numbers is he's not – necessarily the best interior defender in the world however again he's in he's imposing he's huge he's he's very good at blocking shots so i think that in itself could be like a good mental edge when it comes to defending the rim but he's going to be a shot blocker he's going to be a rebounder and i i like you said tk i think like one block per game i can see him pulling in four or five rebounds i don't think he's going to score that much he has shown the ability to do so but i don't really know if he's going to have to on this team so do you, do you have a points per game prediction, or do you want to just kind of say if you, anything you get out of them? Yeah, honestly, I was I've been trying to think of one for a few days, and I I feel like offensively it's going to be like Marquise Bolden. If you get points, you get points. Yeah, he's there for defense. He's there for rebounding. Yeah, and you know the, the difference between him and Bolden. Uh, I mean, there's a number of them, but <laughs> he 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 knows what his expectations. He knows exactly what his role is this year. So with that being said, AC, what do you got for uh, for Theo? Yeah, I, I've agreed with both of the things you guys have said. I, I'd actually probably put his points per game a little lower. I'd probably put him around the two and a half points per game mark. Yeah. Um, just because he's going to have games where he probably scores maybe close to 10 points or something like that just based off of game plan, the way the team's rolling, everything else like that. But he, sh- he shouldn't and he's not going to see, in my opinion, any more than 10 minutes a game, especially if Mark is taking care of business. He's that guy who's going to come in do some cleanup work. If Mark's in foul trouble, he's there as a body. He's a specialist. And we know under under K, specialists don't get a lot of time. They come in for special situations. And I can absolutely see Theo doing that. And I can see him doing it well. That's the thing. I'm not saying his lack of stats is going to be a lack of production. I actually think he's going to be very efficient when he does play, especially in terms of rebounding and defense, not necessarily on the points, points per game aspect. I think he's going to be very helpful when he does play because he has been through it. He is a big body. He knows how to play the game. He was foul. He was foul prone at Marquette, but that's because he's playing twenty some minutes a game. If he's not thrust into that role, the foul trouble is not an issue. So I'm not too worried about that. 
I, I just I just don't want you know him to come in and then fans expect like oh well you know Theo John's going to come in and do a whole bunch. I, he's not brought here to do that, and I don't think he expects it. Right. I think his biggest contributions, honestly, and this is why he might see the a captain captain tag slapped in his name too. Is off the court, he's going to be one of those guys that demands a lot from his teammates. He is he is a very vocal guy. He demands things from from his teammates. He, he did that at Marquette. That was one thing that Wojo talked about with him was how much he puts on himself and his teammates. And he's a leader by example, a leader by voice. And that's absolutely something a team like this that's this young is going to need. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that part from Theo more so than him, you know, getting to the game, trying to get double-digit rebounds. Yep. And so we go from backup center to backup point guard, uh, a guy we talked a lot about last week uh, that we're, we're – we're kind of going to expect a lot more than if you would have asked this, uh, you know, a month and a half, two months ago from Jalen Blake. So that'll be our last expectations for this podcast. And then we'll continue on each week as we get up to, to the starters. But Jack, what do you got for, for Jalen Blake's? So Jalen Blake's is a really interesting case. Cause like, this is a guy who I think could be put into a starting spot if someone gets injured or a couple guys get injured, I should say, cause Keels is going to be the first guy I believe to move into the lineup. But I guess the best way for me to describe what I expect out of him is what people thought Demarcus Nelson was going to be. This is a guy who's going to get you some buckets. He's able to put the ball in the hoop. He can handle. He can pass. He can play, from what I understand, at the college level already, pretty solid defense, which is something for a guy who is not a top top recruit. Mm -hmm. Um, I I can't really quantify necessarily what he's going to do on the simple reason that I don't know how much he's going to play. But if he plays 10 minutes per game, I could say probably four to five points and assist and maybe a steal. If he plays more, then that'll kind of go up as, as his playing time does. But I expect him to play a lot more than I did two weeks ago. Yeah, I'm totally with you on mm-hmm. that. And, and AC, I know you got a lot to say about Blake, so I'll make mine quick. I had absolutely no idea what to do in terms of points. I know he's a much better scorer than you know any of the guys you know you mentioned last week, AC. You know, he's not Connor Thornton. He's not Goldwire. Yep, but I, I'm still going to have him at that two and a half point range, just because I have absolutely no idea what he's going to. I think there's probably going to be a bunch of games where he's zero, and then there's going to be games where he's 13, 14. So I don't know what to expect out of that. I do think we can probably get an assist out of him. And the other thing I actually really think we're going to do is be able to get one steal out of him, just because of his wingspan alone. But uh, you know, I'll let you close this uh, segment up. Yeah, the three guys that we've mentioned already. I think that he and I would even put kind of put Theo in this same directive. I think those two have the most direct route to playing time in terms of being someone's direct backup. Like Jalen Blakes is going to be the backup to Jeremy Roach or whoever the two guard that starts is, whether it's Wendell or Keels, and Keels is going to come in for the two three. However, that, you know, however that rotation plays itself out. The the stat I'm more interested in with with Jalen is less about points per game and more about turnovers per game. Can he limit turnovers? If he comes in and doesn't hurt the team, then I think that we will see him playing a decent amount. I, I, I think he will get, I think he'll get time in every game. I think he will, I can't see him starting unless somebody's out like Jack mentioned, but maybe, you know, maybe he gets one of those, you know, one of those classic K, you know, motivational starts because somebody is slacking or something like that, or somebody's not producing the way they should or whatever. And he is, you know, one of those in the press conference cases, he had a great practice or whatever, you know, those types of things. So I, I you know, I could see something like that in, in his future or whatever, you know, with the squad this season. But 
ultimately, if he's able to limit mistakes on the floor, because that's what you have to do as a point guard, especially a backup point guard, then I, I think he, he sees the floor, and I think he sees some significant time, quite honestly. I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't put him anywhere around. I wouldn't even put him above 10 to 12 minutes a game or anything, but I, I definitely think he could approach that double digits per game mark if he's really taking care of business. Wow. Yeah, okay, so there we go. Those are our predictions for those three players. Again, we'll do a couple more for uh, until we lead up until that first game of the year. We'll start picking out players that will definitely be starting. So your Paolo's will come in a couple weeks. Keep tuning in. But speaking of predictions, AC. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. What about your boy, Bates Jones, man? You left him out. I feel like you did that on purpose. <laughs> Bates Jones, and I guess if you want to do that or Savarino or something, I know I, I, I think something with, uh, you know, I, I figured Jack's going to bring that up. Okay, yeah, Bates Jones. Look, I just want to put this down right here, right okay. now. I think there will be one game maybe two games this season where Bates Jones is a major contributor for this team and helps us win a game. So, I'm putting it out. I'm putting fair, it out there. Fair enough. Well. And so just to get, be very transparent with our audience here, we did have a text chain going, the three of us, and you kind of threw out that if, if words are correct, you said he would win us a couple games, not – I just so I just said that just now too. You said he would be a major factor. Major factor, major factor, and winning you're you a leaving, game. You're leaving, you're leaving important information out. I said he would help us win one to two games. Did I not? I believe that's what was said. Absolutely. Again, we're going to have to go back to the tape here. Look, here's what I know. If, if kind of like what I think, kind of what like we said earlier about some of our players is if we are relying on Bates Jones, and this is it's not a knock on Bates Jones. He was brought in as a probably a courtesy to Danny Dimes. Um, and that family, and that's great. And he had a nice little career at Davidson where he played about eight minutes a game. So here's the thing is that, you know, I know that the reports coming out of practice that he can really contribute and you know, he's beating out the, the legs of Kenny one than 10 and, you know, Savarino, and that's fantastic that he's doing that. <laughs> if we are relying on him to come in and win us a game here, like then we're in trouble. That's all, that's all that's I where you need to adjust. That's where you need to adjust your vernacular and adjust the expectation. It's not that we're relying on him. This is the this is the Nick Horvath special right here. This is one game a season. We played the Paul, and Nick Horvath comes in and hits like five threes. That's what I'm talking about. There is one game in his future this season where he comes in and busts two or three or four threes in a key moment for us that gets us either back into a game or takes the lead over. And and that's exactly what I'm so, talking okay, about. Okay, okay, fair enough. Okay, so let's, ten shooter, absolutely. Okay, fair enough. So let me ask you a question. When you say something like, oh, he comes in and busts three or four threes, first of all, I'll take the under on four for the season. Uh, <laughs> and then and then secondly, are you talking are you talking like okay, like an early ACC game? You know, that's against a Miami, not somebody that's like through the roof here. Or are you talking like a December game where Kane's trying to send a message and we're playing Campbell at home? Honestly, I think it's more likely for it to be one of those one of those January, February lulls that Duke always has where the guys are tired, they're tired of practicing, they're tired of class, all those things. He's been through all that stuff before. He's you know, he's five years in college. He's been through all that mess, so he's got the stamina for that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Plus he's not gonna be playing most of the season anyway. So he'll be well rested. But exactly. So with his with his skill set and everything else, like January absolutely is that horrific time, especially for these freshman-led Duke teams where these guys are just done. They get sick. They get tired. The partying's taken over. All that stuff happens, man. And somebody like Bates Jones comes in and helps us with a game. That's Justin Robinson against Pittsburgh. 
in, in mid-January when he was a sophomore. That's Nick Horvath versus, you know, a, a late one of those late um, non-conference games that Duke used to play when they played DePaul. It's those types of things, man. All right, well. It's Vronkovich versus UNC. Absolutely, dude. Okay, all right. So, <laughs> look, 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 here's my value to you guys, is that we will come back to this before the season. We will get an official bet on the record. I'm still waiting for my state dinner from about four years ago. Um, but we will, we will get – we will absolutely get something on, on the record here because this seems like one of those things where I'm getting double teamed. But, you know, I'm the number one guy. I should be game planned against. I understand that. Okay, here we go. So, uh, speaking of predictions, let's get to uh, recruiting. AC, um, we kind of felt like, you know, after talking to Clint and Brian in our first podcast, that the J.J. Starling momentum was kind of stalled out a little bit. You know, I don't think it's either Notre Dame or Syracuse. Do you think that that ship has completely sailed? Completely no, but has it sailed? It's it's moving in that direction. And it's interesting that Notre Dame is on that list. And I'm guessing, you know, these guys have conversations we're not privy to, obviously. And, you know, the coaches kind of give them the discussion of who's going to be back and who's not going to be back and what to expect. Notre Dame has four to five senior guards that are going to be competing for time with J.J. even in his first season. And – all those guys have the, either have the extra COVID year or even have an extra year because they transferred in. So it's not a guarantee that they'll be back at Notre Dame next season, but it's also not a guarantee that they're not going to go and you know not going to go anywhere. But I feel like Duke has the same amount of uncertainty. So it's it's kind of odd, you know. I, I, that's the only thing I can see that Notre Dame might have over Duke in this regard because we might be getting Keels back, we might be getting more back, we might be getting Roach back. It just depends on how the season goes. It's too early to talk about that, but. Everything else for J.J. Starling seems like it would be all in his favor. The NIL, the ability to put guys out as one and dones because that's what he wants, you know, all, all those things, and a spot on the floor. Like, all those things are things that you would think that Duke would have, especially at that high level, and it's a school he's interested in. So I, I'm, it's strange. When it was a Duke-Syracuse battle, I definitely was like, this is all Duke because Syracuse has been blowing the NIL thing because of Jim Beheim, and we were winning in that battle for sure. But now that Notre Dame's in the mix and it sounds like he's the leader, I'm like, okay. It, it, the only thing I can think that puts it over that is some some kind of loyalty that we're not privy to or, again, you know, available playing time on the floor. And the off chance that he's not – I mean, let me, let me rephrase this. Okay, so could it be a, you know, DJ Stewart situation where even though he should not be one and done, he leaves anyway because that's just what he wants to do? Because the reason I set it up that way is because obviously Caleb Foster – is coming the year behind him. Mm-hmm. And Caleb Foster, you heard Clint and Brian talk about it. He's an elite point guard, and I can't imagine that, you know, J.J. can compete with Caleb Foster in that regard. So do you think that that could play a factor in it at all? Eh, potentially, but Starling's a guy who can play off the ball and enjoys okay. playing off the ball. So I'm not I, – I don't think the, the point guard matters unless it's somebody who's already at the school and he doesn't – he doesn't think that he can play over that person. And if you have that mentality or that mindset, then, you know, quite frankly, cool, go somewhere else. I don't want to say that that's him because I don't want to slander the kid like that, but without, you know, direct solid information. But again, that's us reading the tea leaves and just trying to figure it out. And Jack, you know, count down the craziness next week. Mark Mitchell will be there. Do you think that he, do you think that he commits within 72 hours before or after that visit? I would love for that to happen, but Mitchell has actually already said his decision date is going to be December, 
which I think okay. that's a good thing for Duke because he's going to get to experience Countdown. He's going to get to see all the hype and media attention that Duke gets over the course of the uh, season leading up to his decision. He's going to get to see a lot of different things. He's going to see how Paulo and AJ and Wendell and Joey and everyone else, uh, those are just the guys I can think of that already have deals off the top of my head, like how they do with NIL. I think that's very beneficial, especially with Countdown to Craziness. Mitchell's going to get to see the uh, – he's going to see Cameron Indoor filled to the to the brim with incredibly faith, like devout, faithful Duke fans and students, guys who know uh, who know what's up and are going to show Mark Mitchell they know what's up and that they want him. Yeah, I'd be surprised yeah. if this goes to December. Yeah. I, know he, I remember I, I, he said yeah. that. I know he said that. I would be shocked. Most, most, a lot of kids say that. And it's almost like it's out of respect to all the coaches and things, but it, it and I, I feel like they also, a lot of, they, they don't know what to expect. This is the first time they've ever been recruited for something like this. And, you know, they have great intentions in saying that they're going to wait, you know, so far, so long to, to commit or whatever. But like for him to have his last visit be the beginning essentially of October, and then he's going to wait all the way until December when he has a basketball season to take care of and the stress that comes along with, I have a commitment on my mind and the pressure it's going to put on his actual basketball season. I'd be, I would be very surprised if he waited that long. Yeah. And I got to agree with you. And, and it's really because, because of everything that Jack said, you know, I think that I, I just can't see him waiting very long after that visit is over to, to make a commitment. So October 15th, countdown to craziness. We'll preview it next week, but I can't see that happening. Um, that, that he makes it all the way to December without a commitment. You know, it might even be after, after the Kentucky game, when we smoke him on November 9th. Like, he's like, okay, I can't wait anymore. <laughs> um, but one guy, one other guy I wanted to uh, bring up AC, Gigi Jackson. Um, you know, that seems to be a pretty mm-hmm. hot name, somebody that we're on. Kind of talking about his game, talking about where we are. I know Carolina's in that uh, competition for him. Mm-hmm. So kind of where are we with that, and what kind of player is he? Yeah, Greg Jackson or Gigi Jackson, as they call him, man, he's one of those guys – I would love I would love for this commit a commitment for Duke because that would be the first John Shire beats out UNC battle under his belt. We already have a couple with Kentucky, and now it's time to get one with UNC. Because they are definitely a major player here. He's he's in good with uh Robert Dillingham, which is a guy that UNC expects to commit to them, although that's starting to kind of change a little bit, especially now he's he's at uh Donda Academy with uh, with Kanye West over there, so he might end up going somewhere on the West Coast. But we'll see how that recruitment plays out. But Greg Jackson's—he's six, you know, six nine, six ten, two ten. The kid's just a hoss, man. He's a power forward that he he loves to play down low. He's so strong. He's one of those guys, kind of like Isaiah Stewart, where he can just get down low and just do work. But then he can also step to the outside, dribble, take some shots from the perimeter, you know, kind of like any big man almost these days, or most of them anyway. If you want to have a career in the NBA, you got to be able to do that type of thing. So he's definitely setting himself up for that. You know, a decent defender, really good rebounder, holds position well. I mean, he's just a really good kid, really strong kid, and he's he's really competitive, man. That's a guy I really want on this team, especially with the guys that we're looking for in 2023 and presumably the guys that we lose with the, the 2022 class uh, prior to them. You know I mean? If, if Filipowski sticks around, pairing him with Gigi Jackson is going to be huge, man. I would love to have that. Yeah, that'd be pretty awesome. And Jack, I'll let you close it out here real quick. Um, for John Shire to have as loaded of a class as he has next year and then to back it up that early with another loaded class, how important do you think that that is for 
just the overall image of what he is building after K. Oh, that's a huge, it's a huge statement for, uh, for him just kind of showing that just, just because Coach K is not at the helm doesn't mean that it's not Duke. Duke is Duke. Like uh, Derek Whitehead said before he committed, it's still Duke. I don't care who's the head coach. And uh, Shire is going to back that up. He's going to say, I'm John Shire. I went here. I, I am here to continue this tradition of winning success and being the best college basketball program since the tournament expanded to 64 teams by basically every metric. I think having another loaded class, like like we've said, he already has a start the the start of a class, uh, the stat class with Caleb Foster. I think going after a guy like Jackson is another great great start. I I really think this is just going to be it's going to be a huge statement and just proving that just because K is not there doesn't mean Duke's not there. Yep, and so we'll see uh, as we continue on toward counting the craziness what Mark Mitchell actually does. And when he, you know, decides to pop, and I think we all three are in agreement that it will be for Duke unless something crazy happens. But speaking of crazy, there have been a lot of crazy things that have happened. It hasn't been all the gravy train uh, for the Duke program. And so for this final segment, we wanted to talk about a few what ifs. You know, what if X, Y, Z didn't happen? What if this guy didn't go down? Uh, so obviously a lot of injuries uh, in the what ifs. But we all picked a few, if, if I'm not mistaken. And... Um, so, AC, I'm going to give you the floor first. Did you have one in particular? Did you have a few? You know, what kind of what-ifs for Duke did, did you have? Yeah, this is one of those things, We it, just in talking with people and, you know, on forums and Twitter and everything else, and it just kind of comes up in conversation, a, a bunch of things. I'll, I'll pick one out of this little list, but I just, the list I came up with, just, you know, just what-ifs to think about. It's like, what if Leitner actually got ejected in that game? You know, what happens to Duke in the game against Kentucky? Uh, you know, do do they win? Do do we end up with another uh, the back-to-back titles? You know, who, who, I can't I can't imagine we do based on how the game played out. But you know, you never know. Art Heyman got hurt in the '60s. That's another possible Final Four or even national championship that Duke was in line for. That you know, a lot of people always say there was no basketball before K, which is totally you know BS. But you know, it is what it is. You know, and even within that same span was Duke was in the same Final Four as Texas Western when they started the all-black lineup the first time in the history of college basketball. You know, if it wasn't Kentucky in that footnote instead, if it feels Duke instead, you know, how does that end up changing any, you know, anything for Duke? But um, more recent example is like the, if Boozer never broke his foot, what happens? You know what I mean? I didn't want to choose this one because we've talked about it kind of ad nauseum here and everybody else has too. If Kyrie didn't hurt, what does that se- get hurt? What does that season look like? But the one I really want to focus on is I've, I've kind of always brought this one up. What if Daniel Jones doesn't break his pinky against Georgia Tech in the ACC championship in the 2003-2004 season? You mean Daniel Ewing? Or Sorry, I said Daniel Jones. God, <laughs> Jones on my mind, man. <laughs> Daniel the original Ewing, man. Yeah, the, Daniel the original Ewing. Daniel Yeah, <laughs> yeah the original. Exactly. No, Dan, so Daniel Ewing in the, in the 2004 ACC championship is going up for a layup, breakaway layup. At that point, I think Duke had kind of had the game in control a little bit. And Ishmael Muhammad, one of the dirtiest players ever to grace the ACC, throws him out of the air. Ewing's finger gets caught up in the net off the layup, and he breaks his pinky. Daniel Ewing, up until that point, was actually probably Duke's leading scorer for the last 10 games of the season. And he was on a super roll going into the NCAA tournament. And that crushed that and if we had a good like a good Daniel Ewing against UConn I absolutely think we win that game outright I don't I don't see them making the comeback I see him taking that game over 
Instead, he's trying to play through the NCAA tournament with a broken pinky on his shooting hand. And, you know, we, you know what happens there. He barely scores his, I think he was something like, he was under 20% from the floor of that game. He was just, he was a wreck. So that, that's one I always want to, I always bring up because that was just such a shame how that went down on a dirty play for a team that absolutely could have and should have won the title that season. Yeah, that's one game that I'll never get over. Um, you know, we've talked about these before, but that's certainly in the top three or four for me that I'll never get over. Um, so on that cheery note, uh, Jack, what, uh, what, what ifs do you have? Um, I, I had a few. One of them was obviously Kyrie. Like, what happens if Kyrie doesn't break his foot? Uh, my fifth grade self had the pleasure of being at that me, game. Me, so me too, buddy. Often me wonder. too, buddy. Because <laughs> so um, even when it happened, sorry, Jack. Even when it happened, he didn't think it was that bad because he came back in. Yeah, exactly. Like, I thought he was fine. I was like, oh, this guy's still good. And then he just, you know, didn't play again until the tournament. But no, I also, there was another one uh, the year after Kyrie. There was, a, there was a recruit who was set to commit to Duke uh, until Austin Rivers signed. And uh, that was Bradley Beal. So what happens if Bradley Beal plays at Duke? With or instead of Austin Rivers, does that team maybe get past Lehigh? Is that does the do we beat Carolina at the Dean Dome? Uh, who knows? It, it just if if Rivers and Beal are together, how does how deep does that team go in the tournament? Because, like I said, that that was the uh, the year that Duke lost to Lehigh in the first round. I think having Rivers and Beal together really could have could have improved that a lot. But then the two. The two what ifs, they're kind of they're both the same season that I really wanted to focus on the most were Miles Turner, who was about to commit to Duke, and then Jaleel did. And what happens if Shimmy Ojale does not transfer out midseason? Cause we've seen we've seen how Shimmy Ojale played at SMU. We've seen him be a decent contributor on an NBA playoff team. That's something you really gotta think about. Like, does Matt Jones like become the incredibly good defensive player that we see for three years, the guy who shoots 40% from three, like there's so many just ripples that come out of that. It's that 14, 15 team is like ripe with what ifs. Cause I even put, what if she didn't get kicked yeah. off the team on my list for a minute? It's like that. It's almost like that team losing some of the guys they lost and just being in that eight is enough whole thing. It, it, like they they rallied around that so much. It's almost like all those addition or all those subtractions were you know very very much addition by subtraction. But it's like could they have been a more dominant team or something? You know, you never know what's going to happen. Like does Grayson because he got to step in and and kind of take over in that national title game and that kind of transformed his whole sophomore season. Does he get to have that same sophomore season if he never got that chance? Because if some of those guys are there, Shemi was there. If she was there, I don't know that Grayson has that opportunity against Wisconsin. You know yeah, I, mean? I think it's I think it's Shimmy or it's Matt Jones that gets that opportunity mm-hmm. instead of Grayson. Grayson was the last scholarship guy on the bench that year, like mm-hmm. behind Marshall Plumley, who, you know, Marshall Plumley was averaging less than one point per game for his career until his senior year. Like, right. <laughs> it's it's right. crazy. So many things have just changed because of those two guys like not being like on the roster come tournament time. But also you look at like Miles Turner, imagine him next to Jaleel Okafor. That's like Jaleel's a killer on offense. Turner can shoot the ball and he's like the definition of a rim protector on defense. You just you got a killer like a twin tower type unit there with Tyus Jones at PG, Quinn Cook off the ball. 
is is that is that though is that kind of like the Marvin Bagley and Wendell Carter before the the Marvin Bagley and Wendell Carter? Would that be? I a, think so. I with, think a so more yeah. sta- with a more stable point guard, because if you had Tyus, if you had Tyus right. with Marvin and Wendell, I think they went in the title too. Oh, no question, no question about that. Jeez, so many what ifs. But at least they won the cha- so At least many. they won the championship that year. But you know, so I had a couple um, that I wanted to get to, and you guys can jump in. Uh, and one of them. AC, you and I have had this conversation multiple times on this podcast, usually during the offseason. Uh, but kind of piggybacking off of what Jack said there, Kyrie goes down against Butler in the Eyes Eye Center in front of his home fans. He comes back in. Two what ifs there. What if he doesn't come back in the night game? And probably he definitely made it worse because that's what Turf Toe is. And he definitely made it worse. So what, what if he doesn't come back into that game? And then secondly, what if he doesn't come back at all? And you still and, and you still yes. have, you know, the Nolan Smith, you know, the ACC player of the year. Talk about a huge senior leap. And he was coming on, he was building off a big junior year. What what happens if he doesn't come back and the economy just let that team roll with what they were doing? So AC, what do you think? I don't know, man. I've we've we've had this discussion before. We've yep. had arguments, actual yelling <laughs> arguments with other yeah, people oh, yeah. before about this. I am I'm in the camp that Kyrie coming back hurt Nolan. And the, the stats show it when Kyrie was with Nolan for those 11 games, Nolan was at his worst that season in terms of efficiency and turnovers. When he came back, Nolan had the good game against Michigan, but he was pretty much non-existent against Arizona. And it kind of goes back to, and, and again, Kyrie took over that Arizona game with 34 points. Whenever Kyrie was taken over, Nolan couldn't do anything because Kyrie scored. And they're basically the same exact player. And they never really learned to play together. Now, if Kyrie played the entire season, I absolutely think they iron that whole thing out. And that team goes undefeated, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. But the fact that he came back so late after they had essentially spent you know, 20, 24 games, basically, creating a rhythm with this new team and with Nolan as the new identity of the squad. And he was very much carrying that team and making them a Final Four national championship contender on his own back. I mean, even Kyle Singler was having a bad well, yeah, that's, season that's, by his yeah, own Yeah, that's the thing is that Kyle Singler, I was just going to say, Kyle Singler wasn't playing real well that year mm-hmm. at all. The I mean, only the only two players who really benefited from Kyrie on the floor were Dre and Mason Plumlee. Yep. But those are two guys that you absolutely need because they're supporting characters. So it's like, you know, those, this. I really do, like I said, I really do think this team learns to play together with Kyrie on the floor the whole season. Sure. But throwing him in after they created that new identity without him, I think that created some turmoil. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, so the other ones I had, and, and two of them I wrote down while we were having other discussions because they kind of popped in my head. But, you know, you brought up uh, Emil Jefferson at one point and talking about Marshall Plumlee having the opportunity when Emil went down. But, you know, real quick, what happens if Emil doesn't go down that year and, you know, he's – you know, he's a guy that, that, you know, that Brandon Ingram team was probably never going to, you know, compete for a title. But certainly with the mm-hmm. senior Emil playing as efficient and as well as he was, he was making everything around the basket. He was the anti-jab. You know, he was the guy that was, you know, Nick and Lance. I had to So he was, you know, he was, he was doing the weapons drill, throwing games. I mean, he was both, you know, everywhere. Yeah. So, um, you know, he... He was he was averaging double figures oh, yeah. in points of yeah. rebounds. So and he and he was, he was so, so efficient. So what, oh what God, happens if great. he doesn't go down? And and by the way, what happens if he doesn't go down? So he plays all that year. And what happens if he doesn't go down mm-hmm. and he's not there for that Tatum year? And which kind of led me to think about Heron Giles. 
What happens if Harry Giles right. doesn't have those injuries? He's he's Chris Webber. He was being compared to Chris Webber. And, oh you know, it, it's one of the tra- most, you know, biggest travesties that college basketball has ever had is that a healthy Harry Giles wasn't wasn't there for, for Duke or anyone. Um, all right, so the one that I wanted to talk about with you guys the most is one that really doesn't get talked about at all, and it is what if Tariq Black chooses his transfer year to go to Duke instead of going to Kansas, where he ultimately went. And, you know, we had, you know, for reference, that was the year before we won the title, we lost to Mercer. We had Jabari Parker, who, in my opinion, is one of the most underrated one-and-dones that we've ever had. I think he got robbed of the ACC Player of the Year. He got an average, you know, what was it, 19 points a game, eight-and-a-half rebounds. He only played 30 minutes, and he was forced to play the five, which is not where he should have been playing. You know, Rodney Hood being forced to play the four, um, you know, that's just – it wasn't as – effective as it could have been is if we had had a bid there and that was when you know Marshall was you know still in diapers so you know he, he, he wasn't ready to contribute at all and you know the real quick you know Tariq Black ended up going to Kansas. Jack do you know who was playing for Kansas who was a freshman that year? Joel Embiid. So he didn't even start for Kansas like he started 15 of the 33 games that they played he only averaged 13 and a half minutes a game because he sat behind Joel Embiid. So my question is, not only was there more playing time for Tariq Black, and, and this isn't a guy that I'm saying, you know, he's going to come in here and average, you know, 15 and 10. You know, his best season was averaging, you know, 10 and a half and five at Memphis. But here's a guy that could play 25 minutes at the five, 20 minutes even at the five, so that Jabari Parker doesn't have to. I think that that... that changes that entire season because I think that's how good Jabari Parker was. And real quick before I pass it over to you, Jack, Jabari Parker, in that first game of the year, they played Kansas. And it was in the United Center at home. And Jabari went off. He had 27 in that game. I think it was nine rebounds. He was flat out sensational. Uh, what he was doing at home in the United Center in front of Andrew Wiggins, who was the projected number one pick. They were going back at him, one and two. Uh, who's going to be the number one pick between the two of them? Just imagine if we had a guy that you know could man the post so that he didn't have to play post defense that entire year. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of it's crazy to think about because like, with the exception of that tournament lack of performance, that team actually held their own pretty well for running a small forward at the five and a shooting guard at the four. Um, honestly, I. Like just looking back at that season, Tariq Black, that's a guy who's 6'9", 260. Like, you, you even maybe start Jefferson at the four next to him, put Parker at the three hood at the two in their actual natural positions next to Cook or Thornton. And that's that's a really good team right there. That's a team that could make a deep run, even if Tariq Black's only playing like 20 minutes per game. Like That's, that's not a team that's going to lose to Mercer in the first round because – guys aren't showing up. That's a team where you can dump the ball into the low post because you got a guy who's 260 pounds down there. Honestly, at the end of the day, that's that's the biggest factor, I think. Yeah, you see, I mean, in, in terms of that season, I just think it's one of those teams that gets overlooked, um, you know, as, as one that, oh, and they weren't that good because they lost that last game in the motion. But remember that ACC championship game? It was Jabari versus Virginia. That's yeah. what that game was, you know? Absolutely, and that team, it was so weird because that team, in recent memory, with the one-and-dones, the the one-and-done era at Duke, you got to break it down that way, they had one of the better 
January, February swings that any Duke team has had. They only had two losses in that span. They were really good going down the stretch, and it was you know outside of outside of the ACC championship, and then of course the loss to Mercer. They were on a really good trajectory going into the tournament. So it's like, damn man, like having having a guy because that team's bugaboo for sure was defense. Having oh, a guy who could who could come in and kind of help protect a little bit. You had guys who could defend on the perimeter, but there was no interior defensive help. So that you know right that right there already spelled trouble. So having that type of player down low absolutely would be helpful, man, in, in practice and in game. So, you know, ha- having a guy like Tariq Black or even, you know, even Kay making, you know, some good recruitments at that point in time would have been great, but it just wasn't in the cards. But, yeah, that's a huge what if, dude, because that team, I think that team's trajectory was absolutely better than losing to Mercer. Yeah, for sure. And and one more fun what if from that year. What if the refs had rightly called a foul? At Syracuse, yeah. when Rodney yeah. Hood just almost yeah. facialed that guy. I mean, oh come on, pause. But yeah, that that, was, how was that, was that not a foul? It was so. And by the way, for 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 Beheim to get, you know, I was at this game by the way in Cameron when Beheim's going around running nuts, throwing his jacket on the court, <laughs> ripping the jacket for, off and stuff. Right for for him to do that after for him to do that after what happened uh, up in the Carrier Dome. Are you serious? By the way, if if, if he can reverse that dump. I mean, is that like a top five Duke talk of all time? That mean that might be number one, man. That was so nasty and such and such a cool environment at the Carrier Dome and such a big moment. Yeah. Like that might big that moment. might be number one. <laughs> it would be up there with the Grand Hill Final Four on Oh, I, I and I put it above it since it was that it dude was, was vicious. Essentially, it'd be a game. It was winner. a vicious oh dunk. Yeah. And and that was like some assertiveness that Rodney had never really shown outside of like right. a couple instances. And that that Syracuse loss loss was one of those one of the only late season losses that team had. That season. yeah, it's it's it, it's painful to look back on. But that that call in Cameron that got Bayheim ejected that was that was justice. <laughs> that's, that's a good way to put it. Yes, could, it was. could that have been? Uh, yes, yes, it, it was. was. Let's be honest here, but. You know, it was somewhere right now. There's a Syracuse podcast where they're saying the same thing we're saying. Hey, by the way, there's no chance it's a Syracuse podcast. Nobody's watching those games until we come to town. Nobody, until we come to town. Nobody's, some, nobody's talking about Quet Dwayne right now. Who? The disrespect to Joe Girard. Oh, Joe Girard. Yeah, Can we talk about something real quick? I know we're going off the rails here, but um, AC. Speaking of like guys on Joe Girard. I saw mm-hmm. this on Twitter today, Jack. I don't know if you saw this, where there were actual "quote unquote" Duke fans that were saying that they want Jordan Goldwater over Jeremy Roach. What, what is that about? Clowns. What, what Clowns. is this? What show are we watching? My, my look. I love Why? Jordan Goldwater. These are the same people who said "good riddance" when he announced he was Absolutely. transferring. Absolutely. Like, come on. Come on. That's that's the thing. It's so revisionist, and the fact that people have already given up on a guy who was a freshman last year in a horrible environment coming off of a devastating knee injury, and they're already like, get him out of here. I'd rather have Jordan Goldwater. It just speaks to the level of Duke fan that's on Twitter sometimes. <laughs> and that is why you want to come to Duke Brotherhood Forum. All right, boys. All right, here's, here's the thing. We're, 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 we're wrapping this one up. But we have Countdown to Craziness just a week and a half away. So we will be back here same time next week. Ready for Countdown. We will give our predictions of Countdown. We will give a big preview of Countdown. And Jack, are you going to be in, are you going to be there? Are you going to be rooting for Blue and White game? Are you going to be there chanting for Mark Mitchell to come to Duke? 
I wish I could be a Cameron, but unfortunately I will be out of town that weekend. <laughs> I wish I could go. I wish I could. Absolutely. We need the young guy there. But either way, we will be with you guys next week, ready for Countdown to Crazy News. The season is just around the corner. We are a month away. Go Duke. Let's go Duke. Thank you for tuning in to the 5 Point Play Podcast. The number one Duke fans podcast. Check us out at Instagram at Five Point Play Podcast. That's the number Five Point Play Podcast. And on Twitter, Five Point Play Podcast. Go Duke!